The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, Acts chapter 1. Let's begin reading in verse number 1, if we would. The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. I want you to, I want you to really pay attention to that. Taken up after he had given commandments. That's the key word. Not suggestions, but commandments. To whom also he showed himself after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, and being assembled together with them, commanded them, there's that word again, that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up, and the cloud received him out of their sight. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time we have together today. I pray that that, uh, Father, you would use this time and, and instruct us and encourage us. And, Father, just pray that the Holy Spirit would, would teach us in our hearts and minds and would lead and guide us in all these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is, uh, this is the seventh point on my study under the Great Commission. Uh, we began with the expectations of the Commission, which, if you remember, was for us to go and preach and baptize and teach. And then we looked at the empowering of the of the commission and we saw that all the power comes through the the savior jesus christ or our sovereign lord and then we look thirdly at the effectualness of the commission which which is the the part of the commission that guarantees results that we shall indeed see fruit that we shall indeed reap the harvest in the name of christ and we look fourthly at the augmentation of the of the commission or the exponentiation if you will of the multiplicity of the fact that that the, the, the Great Commission uh, grows, builds upon itself. And, and as we go through life, there are more and more people serving God and doing things for the Lord. And then we looked at, fifthly, the altruistic uh, nature of the Commission, which is the selfless nature. The Great Commission creates in each of us a selfless nature, one that, one that esteems others and, 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 uh, and answers to the needs of others. And then sixthly, we looked at the implementation of the commission, and we spent several weeks there uh, talking about how we are tools in the hands of the master and how we must hone our life and how we must do certain things in our life to make us useful and effective tools for Christ. So now today I'd like to start on the seventh uh, section under this study, and that would be the effects of the commission, the effects, not effects, the effects of the commission. I'm sure most of you here today, if not all of you, have heard of the philosophy of cause and effect. How many of you have ever, ever 
talked about or, or trained or taught in uh, cause and effect. Well, this is what is known as causality. And causality is the relation between an event, the cause, and a second event, which is the effect, where the second event is understood to be a consequence of the first event. Now, this philosophical discipline certainly has to be kept in perspective. I don't want to launch this off into Buddhism or, or, or Zen meditation, of course. I'm not talking about, uh, I'm not talking about karma or kismet or anything like that. Okay, but causality is a real science. It's a real, it's a real study. And we know that both the cause and effect are instruments of God's work, that they're not happenstance. Uh, you know, one thing I have a lot of trouble with, I, I try to remind myself, is not to say I'm a lucky man. Uh, but, but you know, in my mind, I know what I mean, but with my mouth, it may not sound. There is no such thing as luck. There's the providence of God. That's what there is. And all things are done according to God's perfect will. Um, so I'm not talking about some mystical, uh, mystical teaching here or philosophy. Uh, God is the instrument of, of causality in our lives. However, the, the philosophy does have merit when we consider the effects put in motion by the cause, and the cause being the Great Commission. Now, over the many years that I've been in ministry, I've reminded believers that every decision we make bears a consequence. Uh, if I've taught anything to our teenagers over the years, it's this one thing. For every decision you make, there is a consequence. There is a, there is a reaction to every action. And every decision we make bears a consequence. Uh, some, some decisions we make bear good consequences. However, some decisions we make bear bad consequences. And we must remember this. In other words, causality, cause and effect. For instance, Jesus' death on the cross. This is the first event. And his death on the cross set in motion a second event, which we call what? Salvation. As a consequence of the first event. And the effects of this event was felt throughout all of human history, both past and present. In the Old Testament, how were, how were men saved in the Old Testament? Anybody want to venture a guess? Anybody? They were, they were saved by looking forward and trusting and believing in a coming Messiah. Were they not? They were God's elect and their, their, their election established in them a faith. They were saved by faith just like we are. But their faith was in the future. They believed that the Messiah would come. They believed in Jesus as the Son of God, just like we do. But it was in the past, so it was looking forward. But how have men saved in the New Testament? Well, we're looking, we're saved by looking where? Back. We're looking back at the cross, at the crucified Messiah. Faith in the same Messiah. Trust and belief in the same Jesus. So, Jesus' death on the cross uh, was the causality for all men to be saved of, of all times, both, both past and present and future. And now the issuance of the Great Commission by Jesus, which is the cause, has set in motion consequences, which are the effects for all of us here this morning. So with this in mind, I would like to spend a few lessons and look at these effects in three different phases or stages of life uh, in our lives. And this morning, I will begin with letter A on your study sheets, the effect on the church. Let's look at the effects of the Great Commission on the church. 
You're in Acts there, Acts chapter 1. Just turn over to chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and we'll begin reading at verse number 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now the ascension of Christ that we see in Acts chapter 1, ushered in a new era, a new age in, in the life of a Christian, and that is the church, what we call the church age. No longer would the Holy Spirit simply move upon men. You see, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit did not indwell men. He moved upon men. But no longer would he simply move upon men. He would now indwell them and fill them with wisdom and power. This is surely has to be considered an effect of the Great Commission. The Spirit did not come until the Lord departed. And, and as he departed, he gave the Great Commission, the commandment to God's people. And an effect of that, of that Great Commission was the fact that the Spirit moved upon men, that he, that he moved into men and indwelled them. That is the result of the sovereign will of God for his people. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16, we read, And what agreement had the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. Uh, in the pastor's forum class one day, the question was raised, uh, why is it necessary for modern-day Christians to go to Jerusalem to worship? Well, the answer is right here. We are the temples of God. We don't need to go to Jerusalem because the temple is wherever we are. God And God has said, continue to read, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, this is a reference to a, a quotation from Leviticus chapter 26, verses 11 and 12, where we read, And I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul should not, shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and will be your God, and ye shall be my people. So we see here that, that the Great Commission uh, given by Christ had an effect upon the church. So what impact does the Great Commission have upon the church? Well, I have two points on our study this morning, so let's get into those. Number one, the first effect of the Great Commission upon the church is that it affirms its mission. It affirms its mission. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew, just back a few books toward the, toward the front. Matthew, chapter 28. Matthew, chapter 28, and here we see the, the ascension of Christ given in Matthew's account. Matthew, chapter 28, and let's begin reading in verse number 19. And we've read these many times already in this study, beginning in verse 19. Go ye, therefore... And teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Now, here we see the primary mission of the church, given in Matthew chapter 28. 
What is the primary mission of the church based upon these scriptures? Can anyone tell me? We've, we've, we've discussed this several times already in this study. What's the first, first verb? To go. And then to preach. And then to, thirdly, baptize. And fourthly, teach. Right? So we're to go and preach and baptize and teach. And here we see, in my mind, here we see the primary mission of the church. And the, and the, gospel, the, the Great Commission affirms or assures or, or anchors that mission. Far too often, organizations forget their primary mission. They forget about their purpose for existence. And by organizations, I mean religious organizations, churches. They forget their primary reason for existence. And I fear that across our nation, this is true concerning the New Testament church. And if we are not careful, it could become true even in our church. If we, if we fail to, to constantly remember and remind ourselves, you know, there's something interesting about the human mind. It can do something faster than I've ever even imagined. You know what it is? Who said that? That's right. We forget things so quickly, don't we? You know, on a busy day, you're having a, you're having a tough day. Things are going, aren't going well and you're, you're all frustrated and you're flustered and you're, who do you, what's the, who, who's the first thing, you, person you forget about? By and large. God. Right? You get all so wrapped up in what's going on, we forget all about God. And, and the human mind can forget so quickly. The human mind, you, you know, you have a few victorious weeks and you're feeling great and all of a sudden you forget what, what got you there. Huh? You ever been there? I have many times. Start resting on your own laurels, start, start, start resting on your own achievements, your own accomplishments. You forget that it's God that got you where you were. And all of a sudden you wake up one morning and you're all despondent and discouraged and depressed. And you wake up and you say, whoa, I forgot about God. We forget. And churches, if, the, if, if churches are not careful and if pastors are not faithful to keep hitting that reset button often... Churches forget about their primary mission. They get all wrapped up in, 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 in food kitchens and, and, and in food banks and, and in homeless shelters and in this and in that and all kind of parachurch organizations. Get all wrapped up, put all their attention into that. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more later, so I don't want to preach the end of my message at the beginning. But we forget about our primary mission in our, in our churches. Now think about this for a moment. How often do you really forget why you are really here? Hmm? Now, be honest for a moment. You don't have to raise your hand. I don't want to embarrass anybody. But have you ever found yourself sitting in the church and suddenly saying, what am I I really doing? What's really going on? We forget. And if we all want to be honest, we'll admit that we do. We forget about these things. We come to church out of a sense of duty. And we should. We should come to church. We come out of habit. Some people, over time, some people just get in the habit of coming to church. And that's a good habit to have, by the way. But they really forget why they're here. And what it's really all about. 
We come, but do we come with the right attitude? Do we come with an, with an expectancy? You know, every time, I, every time I come and sit in the pews and the pastor starts preaching, I start listening for what I need. I start listening to what applies to me. I remember when I, when, I, remember when I was first saved, I'd go to church, and I'd sit there in the pew, and the, the preacher would start preaching, and boy, I, I just felt like I was the only person there. Like he was talking directly to me. Sometimes I'd sit there and, Man, what's he, he's talking about me. And that's the way I want to. You know what? I don't go to church because it's a duty. I don't go to church because it makes me feel good. I come to church to serve the Lord. And I come to church to be taught. And to be, to be challenged by the Holy Spirit of God. And, and you know, when the preacher, when the preacher uh, preaches a, a message, if, if I leave that message not feeling like, feel, not feeling like the Holy Spirit was, was slamming me around, I wonder, why didn't I get anything out of that? Because this is why we are here. We need to remember why we are here. We are here uh, to be taught. We're here to listen to the preaching. And the mission of the church is to go and to preach and to baptize and to teach. It is of great importance that we remember the mission of our church. It is to go into the highways and hedges and compel men to come to Christ. Now, I've actually, in my years of bus ministry, had to go through a few hedges. Uh, sometimes a dog would get after me, and through a hedge was the quickest way away from there. So I have been, I have been through hedges, but not many. But turn with me now. Let's turn to Luke. Luke chapter 14. And we'll quickly try to read this, this story in Luke chapter 14. You know, I went for a long time without teaching a Sunday school class, so I, I kind of lost a feel for how much material I could actually come with. But I'm getting a feel for it again, so I think we're, we're in good shape today. Luke chapter 14, and let's begin reading at verse number 16. Then said he unto him, A certain man made a great supper and bade many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. Boy, isn't that the world today, just making excuse after excuse after excuse uh, concerning spiritual things? The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife. Now, this is the only guy that had a legitimate excuse. I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. As soon as you marry a wife, you can't play anymore, guys, so you got to remember that. Number 21, so that servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you, uh, that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper." And here we see a, a, an illustration of, of, the, uh, of, the, of the house of God, the people of God, Israel, refusing the, the, the Messiah, refusing God's supper. So the, the highways and the hedges represent the Gentiles. And that's us, that's you and I, and that's, that's the mission of the church, is to go out into the highways and the hedges and, and, and the byways and the lanes and compel them to come in. Compel them to come in. That means by any means necessary, drag them if we have to, get them to come in. 
The Great Commission serves to remind us of our mission as a church to go and preach to all men. So what about you and I this morning? Let me get personal for just a moment. How much effort, how much energy, how much effort, how much compelling did we do this last week? How many people did you drag in here this morning? And I'm talking to myself as well. Have we forgotten our mission as a church? It's not to come in here and be, and be, be, be entertained. Our mission is to go out into the highways and, and the hedges and compel men to come in. Plead with them, beg them. Hog time and drag them in if we have to. How much did we do that? How much time did we spend this week compelling men to come to Christ? You see, we better be careful. We better be careful not to get too proud of ourselves. We better get careful not to get too, too haughty in our spirit. Because the mission of the church is to go and preach and baptize and teach. And if we're not doing that, then what are we doing? I don't know what we're doing, but we're not doing the mission of the church. Every one of us is to go. Not just the pastor or the deacons. Everyone is to go. And to go with the purpose of preaching, not just to, not just to go out and, and chit-chat, but to go and preach. And to, and to bring our sheaves in rejoicing and, and to baptize them and to teach them so that they too can learn to go and preach and baptize and teach. Listen, all the things we do around here at our church are not worth doing if we're not doing the main thing. Amen? I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing that we do here that's worth doing if we're not doing the first thing, which is obeying God and his command in the Great Commission. Our mission as a church is to go and it's to teach all those that God gives us. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes, Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts, Shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears? And this is where we are today in America. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Now over the number of years that I've been a teacher, I've learned some very important factors that are necessary to be an effective teacher. So let me share these thoughts with you real quickly. First, the first factor is this, knowledge. 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, Rightly dividing the word of truth. I used to meet with our teachers, our staff, every summer before school would start, and I'd always tell them the same thing. I'd tell them this, you cannot teach what you do not know. You cannot teach what you do not know. It is the duty of every member of this church to study the Bible, to study the word of God, and to know what and why we believe. We must have knowledge. Secondly, the second factor is this, and this is a big one, patience. Patience. In Matthew chapter 18, a pastor preached on this just recently. We read, then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive? Till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say, unto thee, I say not unto thee until seven times, 
but until 70 times 7. Patience. It takes patience to teach. If you don't believe that, lock yourself in a room with teenagers uh, for a little while. and, and then, or Not even teenagers. Try five-year-olds or six-year-olds. Got to have patience. I've, I've walked down the halls in our school and heard some teachers say, you have a head like a rock. How many times do I have to tell you the same thing? Sound like Peter, doesn't it? How many times do I have to forgive him, Lord? Patience. Do it as many times as it takes to get the information across. How long did it take you, those of you who are older saints, how long did it take you to learn all the things you, you know today? So be patient with young Christians. Be patient with new believers and give them a chance to learn what you've learned. By the way, aren't you glad that God is patient with you? Hmm? Boy, I'm sure glad God is patient with me. My, my father had so much patience. I tell you, I, I nearly killed my father at least a half dozen times growing up. And I could tell you stories, but we don't have time. Patience. The third factor is this, discipline. And I'm not talking about disciplining them. I'm talking about disciplining yourself. In 1 Timothy 4.12, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in truth. You know, there's an old saying, when you point at someone, there's three fingers pointing back at you. And you know what? You better be careful about pointing fingers at other people. You better make sure that you are living what you're preaching. You better make sure you're living what you're teaching. Because the first ones to see that you are not are going to be those that you are trying to teach. We, we lead by example. I, I, I've lived with a philosophy that says it's easier to get men to work with me than for me. And don't sit on a high throne and command people. Get down there and, and work with them and teach them through your example how to do these things. Teach your children how to live for the Lord by your example. Do, do, do it the right way. And then the other factor is compassion. Compassion. If we're going to be effective teachers, we must have knowledge, patience, discipline, and compassion. In Mark chapter 6 and verse 34, we read, And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people and was moved with compassion toward them, because they were as sheep not having a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Have compassion upon people. People need to be led. They need to be taught. They need, they need someone to encourage them along. Yeah, I'm sorry, Chuck. I didn't encourage you about your coming spinal tap. You're going to enjoy it. It's going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> Bring a book to read. <laughs> God in his righteousness is capable of feeling indignation. Now listen to me carefully. God in his righteousness is capable of feeling indignation toward a man without partiality and without ulterior motives. Do you understand that? When God becomes indignant with a, with a, a person, he, he, he does it in righteousness. However, you and I are incapable of such discernment. This is why God has commanded us to love our neighbors as ourselves. In Galatians chapter 5, we read, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, 
thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. And we need compassion, compassion for uh, the children, compassion for the lost. If, if, if a younger believer or a younger person hasn't attained to, to full understanding yet, we need to have compassion on them when they make mistakes, not pounce on them, not land on them with both feet, desiring to see them pay for their, for their wrong, but having compassion. I'm not saying ignore what they've done wrong. I'm not saying uh, just look the other way. Admonish them, uh, exhort them. Edify them, but do it with love and with compassion and let them see it. Let them know that you love them and that's why you're concerned. Uh, someone once told me this. Be kind to everyone you meet. Because everyone is having a bad day. And you know, every day since, since I heard that, I, remi- I, I, I remind myself of that. And I try, to, I try to do that. Be kind to those around you because they're going through tough times too. How do you want to be treated when things are? You ever notice how when things are going wrong, it seems like everything piles on? You ever notice that? Well, don't be a piler. Okay? Don't pile on. Have kindness and love. To be an effective teacher, you must be driven by compassion for those you teach. So the first effect of the Great Commission is on the church and its affirmation of its mission. But then secondly, and quickly this morning... What is the second effect of the Great Commission? It appropriates its resources. It appropriates its resources. I have down Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, but I don't have time to read it. I only have about four more minutes. Read that scripture later and make the application. But there are many tasks in the New Testament church that must be carried out in order for the church to obey the Great Commission. And from the passage, from, from that passage of scripture in Ephesians, we can see the appropriation of offices and authorities in the church to accomplish this work. The organization of the church is such that all emphasis is placed in the training of its membership to one end. And that end is that we will have the knowledge and understanding to go forth and preach the gospel. So you see how it all ties in? Through the Great Commission, God has appropriated the resources of the church for the training, for the edification of the saints, for the work of the ministry. Right? Isn't that what Ephesians says? Let's go there. We don't have time, but we're going to make time. Ephesians chapter 4. We won't read the entire thing. We'll just skip to the pertinent section. Was it Ephesians chapter 4, I said? Ephesians chapter 4, yes. Okay, let's, let's, um, let's look at verse 10. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 11. We read, And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Why? Why did, he, why did God appropriate all these different offices in the church? Verse 12. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And there it is. The Great Commission appropriates the resources of the church for the purpose of teaching the membership of the church to obey the Great Commission. To go forth and preach the gospel. I believe in helping people. I do. I believe in youth camps. I believe in adult conferences. I believe in food banks. I believe in soup kitchens. I believe in homeless shelters. 
I'm not an uncaring or inconsiderate person, but these are not the mission of the church. They're all good things, and they're all things we should participate in as much as we can, but they are not the mission of the church. I can't tell you how many times people call or walk through these doors and come here, and, and, and they, believe, they think the mission of Berean Baptist Church should be to give them money or to give them food or all these things, and these are all good things, are they not? And we should do them when we can on a personal basis, right? They're not the mission of the church. Paul stated, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And I have known far too many churches that spend all their resources, people and finances, in pursuit of these things and do not fall under the mission of the church. Jesus didn't sacrifice his life on Calvary to build camps, or food banks, or soup kitchens, or homeless shelters. He himself had no place where to lay his head. He carried no money on his person. He lived in total dependence upon God the Father. And he did not establish the church for these things either. And we had better not be guilty of misappropriating the resources he has given us. So our mission as a church is the propagation of the gospel to all those that God will bring into our life. Now I hope this morning that we have been reminded of the mission of the church. And that we will not forget why we are here today. Thank you for being here this morning. I appreciate your attention. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.